You're listening to The Maastricht Diplomat. Hello, everyone. I'm Lean, and welcome to the second episode in a series where we look at recent films and analyze them in their broader social and political context. So today we are looking at a film which is not as recent as the film we analyzed in our first episode, which was the film Close, however is considered a timeless classic and has a profound impact on watchers to this day. We will be looking at the Academy Award-winning film Call Me By Your Name. Call Me By Your Name is a 2017 coming-of-age film directed by Luca Guadagnino, who you may know as he also directed Bones and All. It is based on the novel of the same name by Andre Asiman. The story is set in northern Italy in the summer of 1983 and follows the relationship that develops between 17-year-old Elio Perlman, played by Timothy Chalamet, and his father's 24-year-old graduate student, Oliver, played by Armie Hammer, who has come to stay with their family for the summer. They become infatuated with one another and the two begin to explore their attraction towards each other. The film is known for its beautiful cinematography and powerful performances, particularly by Chalamet, who earned critical acclaim and several award nominations for his portrayal of Elio. I'm here with Hadrian today, Hi. who, just like me, considers this film one of his all-time favorites. So why don't you start by telling me, when you watched this film for the first time, what you thought of it and how it became one of your all-time favorites. So I watched this film for the first time when I was 15, so around 2018. And the first time I watched it, it opened up a whole new world for me. I mean, not even just in terms of emotions, mm -hmm. but also to a whole new kind of cinema, I feel. Because like in that moment, I was just getting to know film history and film philosophy. And mm -hmm. that was one of the first movies that I ever saw where pacing was so important, where for the first time I could sit down, watch a movie and actually hear the sounds of nature around the characters, actually experience it fully and taking me on a journey instead of simply taking me through classic divisions of plot points and dialogues and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And I feel like ever since I watched that movie, I've been trying to find that same atmospheric touch in every single film I watch. And it stuck with me for a very long time. That's beautiful. I had quite the similar experience. And the film is obviously loved by so many. I've just talked about its wide success. You just briefly touched upon its slow pace and its sensuality. And the way I perceived it, what differentiates this film and makes it so enjoyable to watch is that the film operates invisibly, which ties into what you previously said. Even though it is visually striking in every aspect, it really excels in its sensuality and subtlety. This is captured by small scenes or details which don't necessarily contribute to the storyline mm -hmm. or the involvement of the plot, but evoke familiar feelings. Some examples include a small scene where Oliver simply walks down the stairs, yeah. but he doesn't just walk down the stairs, right? He curiously lingers to feel the texture of the wall cloth, or Oliver dusting off his bike before going to town, or also there's this scene where Elio is rolling around in his bed trying to fall asleep. These are all small scenes from everyday life which we can relate to and know the feeling of. And yeah, in my opinion, just adds an immense amount of depth, evokes feelings of empathy, and makes the characters so much more relatable. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's always trying to put you in their shoes and place you in that yes. exact same summer. And that's why I think it got so famous because there's not a lot of known movies nowadays from more established, more somewhat commercial directors who have the courage to ask the viewer to sit through something that is less canonical, that's less entertaining in a more commercial sense. Mm -hmm. And it just got me thinking about, you know, Guaranino is Italian. Mm -hmm. He's from Northern Italy. Yes. And there's a lot to say about the tradition of Italian filmmaking when it comes to these kind of films who have a slow pace. I mean, typically they're called slow cinema. Mm -hmm. There's some who call it transcendental cinema, like Paul Schrader. Mm -hmm. But in Italy, this was a very important fashion of cinema in what was called neorealism. Mm -hmm. And it's impossible to overlook when talking about any Italian director, even right now, I feel it's such a present tradition. But it was just these kind of movies that prioritized showing you a world. And it yes. prioritized scenes of everyday yes. life. It prioritized scenes where you're trying to understand why the characters did something. Mm -hmm. And you wouldn't encounter the usual plot points, the usual catalysts, the usual inciting incidents. Mm -hmm. Instead, you would encounter mundane life, everyday life. And I just think it's beautiful to have that same tradition continue even in current cinema. It must not be forgotten at all. Yes, absolutely. And this is also captured by the soundtrack of the film, mm. right? The soundtrack by Sufjan Stevens is Mystery of Love, really captures the idea you just talked about. The first line of the song is Oh, to see without my eyes. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Oh, to see without my eyes, which paradoxically is exactly what the film enables you to do. It invites you to see the film by feeling it rather than merely seeing the film by intellectualizing Absolutely. it. And that yes. is exactly how the whole world is established. That's why the world is so vast. And we feel like we are actually in it while watching the movie because we don't see it. We feel it and experience it. Exactly. Yeah, it's not supposed to entertain us in the way we're used to being entertained, you know? I mean, there's a lot to say about how American films, mostly, or any movie that follows that sort of tradition, are so focused on having every single element bring towards something. And so I remember when I was reading through some books that had to do with script writing and everything, it was always that every single line of dialogue, for example, needed to bring you somewhere, needed to bring you somewhere in terms of plot. Every scene needed to have a meaning. You couldn't just have regular everyday scenes because it wouldn't bring the movie anywhere and it was deemed unacceptable. And that's why it's really important that this movie has gained all this success because it might tell a lot of directors today that it's okay to venture in this path. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting you say that these books that you read about script writing talk about, you know, filling individual scenes with plot and content because when I really thought about the scenes in Call Me By Your Name, I realized that the entire plot of the film is actually embedded in scenes that paint the overall picture of a summer day in northern Italy in the 80s. And that is precisely what gives the world a tactile dimension. The setting, which is mainly this beautiful house in the garden of Elio's family, becomes a character of its own. And this character is developed through scenes in which Elio is wandering through the house. It does not contribute to the storyline in any way. However, we relate to and sense his boredom, a feeling that we all know yet experience so little nowadays, um, and that yeah, really adds to the sensual aspect and represents enjoyment of the film. 
actually, I believe that the slow-paced setting, all of these scenes that don't really contribute to the plot, the abundance of these intimate scenes is what leads to a space for Elio to explore his sexuality in the first place, and that then constitutes the plot, right? I think that's absolutely true. Yeah, the fact that the plot essentially evolves from these familiar everyday scenarios contributes to the plot feeling so raw and authentic. Yeah, I think you can definitely say that the plot has a lot to do with Elio exploring himself. And Mm -hmm. I was doing a rewatch the other day, and Mm -hmm. what I really noticed is how the house where the movie is set in, where the two meet, where their family lives and everything, is such an essential element in the movie. It really is. It really is the setting. And the fact that it's so big Mm -hmm. and the camera, the director, is so focused Mm -hmm. with showing us every single room, with taking us along with the character across every single corridor and everything, it sort of represents the physical space that Elio walks around in terms of him wandering around his own psyche, trying to understand what's Mm -hmm. going on in his head, you know? Exactly. And I believe the consequentially added realism that emerges from this space, from, for example, the house or even the garden or even crema, I believe that this really adds to the realism of the storyline and is a result of outstanding directing. In an interview, Luca Guadagnino elaborated on a lesson he learned by, I'm sure you know him, legendary Italian filmmaker, Bernardo Bertolucci. Exactly. Mm. And claimed that script writing doesn't count. That is what mm-hmm. Bernardo Bertolucci claimed. He specifically said that, quote, you have to throw the script when you start a movie, end oh. quote. And Guadagnino really took that lesson by the letter. Part of a film director's job on set is to direct performance and the movement of the actors within the space. And so the previously mentioned scenes, and quite frankly, throughout the entire film, Guadagnino really emphasizes the tactile nature of the world. I had no idea about this. It's very interesting. Yeah, exactly. And because this is a film that also had a great impact on me personally, I took the time to additionally read both a novel and a screenplay. And what's really interesting about this is that in the screenplay, none of the subtle details are mentioned at all, even though it is James Ivory screenplay Mm -hmm. who won the Oscar at the Academy Awards. The screenplay is in fact very minimalistic by simply stating things like Oliver walks down the stairs, Oliver rides the bike to town, or Elio and Oliver walk in the lake, right? Not talking about touching the wall cloth in any way. Some scenes like Elio trying to fall asleep aren't even mentioned in the screenplay, which implies that Guadagnino deliberately added these scenes to fulfill his mission of illustrating this world in an empathetic manner. Yeah, absolutely, a whole world. Guadagnino, in fact, isn't the first person to understand the value and attempt to capture these scenes, which are commonly referred to as scenes in focus. Mm. Another director that came to my mind is Hayao Miyazaki, Mm. who is one of Japan's greatest animation directors and the co-founder of Studio Ghibli. Miyazaki is famous for writing films not from script, but instead opting to formulate his stories exclusively through his storyboards and visualization, which means that he draws his stories before even knowing what is going to happen in the future or how the story may end. It's really interesting. It's very interesting and a very unique way of filmmaking. And what this does is it allows the highly visual nature of animation to dictate the pace and development of his films and their events. He too has a very specific approach to narrative momentum, which can be observed in personally one of my favorite film scenes ever. 
And that is the train ride in Spirited mm-hmm. Away, which is considered one of the greatest scenes ever animated. Beautiful. Yes. Absolutely beautiful. Yeah. What happens in the scene corresponds to its name. The protagonist, Chihiro, and her companion, Kaonashi, who is referred to as No Face, simply sit on the train and wait for their stop. That is it. As a result of Miyazaki's philosophy, this scene constitutes of beautifully animated scenes that don't unfold any plot, but simply capture the atmosphere of the setting, just like we've observed in Call Me By Your Name. There is virtually no dialogue, but for three minutes, 28 shots, and more than a thousand frames of hand-painted animation, the watcher thinks and feels the hero, who does nothing but simply reflect on her journey. It allows us to breathe with the hero and take a break from everything that goes on in Spirited Away, which granted is quite a lot. (laughs) This scene is additionally laced with a beautiful score by Joe Hizaishi, the sixth station, which creates a magnificent experience for the watcher. What Miyazaki and Guadagnino have in common is that they both dedicate time to the journey, which is something that I personally deeply value in films and leads to my appreciation for Call Me By Your Name and, of course, also Spirited Away. I completely agree. What Miyazaki and Guadagnino have in common is that they both dedicate time to the journey, which is something I personally deeply value in films. Regardless of Call Me By Your Name's subtlety and sensuality, what truly differentiates this film from others is its utopian setting. There really isn't any conflict of interest, which is why it took Call Me By Your Name 10 years to receive funding and produce this film. In any gay romance story, I think a lot of films bring in the obvious conflict of homophobia, as we've seen in our previous episode Close, but Call Me By Your Name stays completely clear of that and actually pushes it in the opposite direction. Gay couples visit Elio's family for dinner, and Mr. Perlman, Elio's father, explicitly denounces homophobia. The archaeological expeditions to Lago di Garda, the going out at night, swimming in the river, reading books, transcribing music, having supportive parents, girls all over you, reading books in this beautiful Italian town with an even more beautiful house, there is no better setting to fall in love it is absolutely perfect, highly seductive, and thus the definition of a utopia. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's interesting because according to Guadagnino, the antagonist here is time, right? Which we don't experience or see in films very often. Oliver leaving sneaks up on us. Every time I personally watch the film, I almost forget that he has to leave. And thus we are just as heartbroken when it happens as Elio. The only catalyst moment in this film is in the last 20 minutes of a two-hour film where Oliver leaves and once the summer is over, so is the perfect world created. It gets shattered when the lake Elio and Oliver once swam in is covered in snow. The seasons, summer and winter, represent this cut and their utopia diminishes. After this catalyst moment, Oliver announces to Elio that he is getting married, which of course is heartbreaking for Elio to hear. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think what you said really punctuates this duality because on one hand, I completely agree that this is a full-blown utopia. And I think it was crafted to be that way. Mm -hmm. The lack of outside homophobia, which is present in so many other queer stories, is conspicuous, I feel. And it's as if Elio and Oliver are granted this space where they can completely explore each other and their minds and their thoughts and their emotions. And I think it really is meant to be a utopia. 
But like you said, towards the end, we start to reach this point where the conflict becomes more and more evident. Mm -hmm. And that's what I find so beautiful. I mean, the beginning is dedicated to all these scenes that depict who Elio is and what that world is. And it takes so long for them to actually engage in a relationship. Mm -hmm. And so, like you said, time is an antagonist. And I feel like you as a spectator, you really feel that because you've been taken through all these scenes which imbue this sense of time passing. And so it really feels like it took them a long time to get there. And you feel it like them that they maybe wasted time in their own words or they just that... They specifically say that. Remember that scene? Yeah, they specifically I say think that. Elio says, God, we wasted so many days. And I feel like the director really showed it to us with like this mm -hmm. masterful technique and it really plays with your sense of time and that's amazing in a movie. Mm -hmm. But back to what I was trying to say about the utopia, towards the end, the conflict starts to arise more and more, I feel. The conflict of interest that before was more or less lacking starts to arise And it's not only Oliver starting to raise concerns about whether Elio is okay with what's going on. It's also the father mentioning that this is something considered more atypical for traditional families that he didn't get to do. So we're more and more acknowledging as time goes on what their relationship is. We're starting to sort of label it towards the end. Mm -hmm. And so that makes me feel like, although it is constructed to be a utopia, it is also placed in a specific context. Mm -hmm. And that's also something we see from the very beginning. I mean, it's somewhere in Northern Italy and it's in 1983. It has a very specific date. And what I also found really interesting is that Guaranino wanted to include political realism oh, in yeah. this film. There's this one scene that I'll never forget because it's so authentically Italian, I feel, yeah. where Elio's parents are hosting two other Italian friends, a couple, mm -hmm. and they're just arguing They're yelling almost, mm -hmm. and they're arguing about Italian in, politics. In Italian. In Italian, complete Italian. Yeah. And they're mentioning very specific political happenings mm -hmm. and situations that were occurring in that very year. I mean, they mentioned Bettino Craxi, they mentioned mm -hmm. Il Compromesso Storico, which is something that comes a little bit before, but still, it's as if Guaranino still really wanted to ground it in a political reality. And so it's really interesting to have this duality between Ellie and Oliver having their mm -hmm. own space, their own universe, mm -hmm. but then at the same time, Guaranino wants to remind us as a spectator that the world outside still exists. Mm -hmm. Do you think that maybe Guaranino was trying to introduce reality a little bit? Maybe in some way, sort of mm -hmm. slowly let it in, mm -hmm. yeah, and keep us grounded somehow. Right. Not sort forget of remind what's us. going on. Exactly. Not forget that this is still reality. And remind us that you know, they're going to have to get back to their lives mm -hmm. at one point. Yeah. And that makes it even clear that what they're living was a utopia because the only moment when the conflict arises, so like mm -hmm. you said in the last 20 minutes, the only mm -hmm. moment where there is a catalyst, mm -hmm. namely where Oliver reveals that there isn't going to be a future for them, mm -hmm. at least not in the near future, mm -hmm. that all happens. The catalyst only arises when they're back in their own settings. Oliver is back in America, is back in his own house. Elio is in the vacation house they were both in, but it's in winter and he's just with his parents. It's a more regular setting for Elio. And it proves that their love could only work in that summer when they were together. And it mm -hmm. proves that that summer when they were together is in fact a utopia. Mm -hmm. And I think this is very important when we're talking about the claims, the issues surrounding this movie, mm -hmm. the attention, the I might say, negative attention that it's been receiving lately in terms of its story. There are a lot of people 
who think that the relationship depicted between Ellie and Oliver could be harmful to viewers mm -hmm. because it's essentially a relationship where there is an imbalance between an older man and a younger man. And there are claims of what people call grooming. So taking advantage, exploitation of this weaker position that supposedly, allegedly, Elio is in. And there are a lot of people who are trying to denounce this. I believe that the fact they are in their own utopia goes to explain why this particular narrative choice was made to have this imbalance. Mm -hmm. Because they're away from the world. Mm -hmm. If this were set in our year in a metropolitan city where TikTok exists, where social media exists, mm -hmm. where people are held accountable, mm -hmm. rightfully so, mm -hmm. then probably that element of the story would have been more conspicuous. It would have been more of a problem. But the fact that they were away from everyone, they were away from everything, they were in their own moment, they were experiencing emotions for each other as human beings. Mm -hmm. And this is something that is also punctuated by the dialogue itself, by the contents of the story itself. I mean, there's a scene that I always think about where Elio's dad is looking through some slides, some yes. picture slides yeah. with Oliver, depicting these gorgeous Greek statues. Yes. And in these statues, Perlman is sort of analyzing them and he mentions their curves, he mentions their beauty, their sensuality, mm -hmm. and he specifically mentions, hence their ageless ambiguity. Right. It's what's going on with our characters here. There's an ageless ambiguity. They're supposed to not look at those factors. They're supposed to not look at who they are when they're going to go back home. Mm -hmm. It's just who they are in that moment in that utopia. And he also talks about how they are impossibly curved. Yeah. And I think the fact that he specifically says impossibly also indicates that this is not something that would work in any setting. Absolutely. And it only works in this utopia that you just talked Absolutely. about. Absolutely. And you know... Speaking of the Greek statues that they're constantly looking at, I mean, mm -hmm. it's no secret that a very important aspect of this film is the very reason why Oliver came to the house, which is the study of Greek culture, of Roman culture, right. of just what is called classical. And there are specific scenes where we look at these statues mm -hmm. in their beauty. Mm -hmm. And since it's also in this utopian setting, away from everything in this Italian villa, I think there's a lot to say about how the director maybe also wanted to attribute a sort of classical and more Greek-Roman style mm -hmm. to the story of Elio and Oliver. Mm -hmm. I think he wanted Oliver to be the male canonical beauty that is depicted in the statues, just as he wanted Elio to be the same. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are scenes, and I noticed this parallel just the last time I actually rewatched it, the scene where they go and unearth or uncover because it's from the sea, so it's a little mm -hmm. different, I guess. But yeah, when they bring up a statue from under the water, and it's just this gorgeous, perfectly kept statue mm -hmm. with beautiful features, a beautiful nose, a beautiful yeah. mouth, everything yeah. so soft and delicate. Mm -hmm. And there's a scene of Elio just grazing his fingers mm -hmm. on the statue's nose, on its mouth, on all its features. Maybe 20 minutes after, there's a scene where Oliver is touching Elio in the same exact way. And so I think it's just very clear how Guaranino also wanted to imbue this sense of classical and Hellenic culture in this movie. And if we acknowledge this, I think it's also important to acknowledge that in Greek culture and also in Roman culture, there was a very predominant and very common dynamic established, namely between older men 
and younger men. And this is called pederasty or pederastia. And it was basically a dynamic that was widely accepted because it consisted in an older man Mm -hmm. who was wise, who was sage, who knew everything he needed to know from life, who would take in younger men and instruct them on life. And the fact is, it was also common for these two men to engage in either a romantic or a sexual relationship. It was just part of this kind of dynamic. Mm-hmm. And whether it's right or not, I'm not touching that at all. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying that it was something that was very common in that culture in those times. And if Guadagnino is trying to imbue, to attribute this Hellenistic culture to our movie, then there's a lot to say about how maybe he's just trying to replicate a dynamic that was very real. And he's just trying to re-evoke something from the past mm-hmm. in our present time, in a utopia, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. And explicitly, the scene that you just talked about, there's one specific shot when the Venus is brought up Mm -hmm. from the water where you just see Elio, Professor Perlman, Oliver, and I think another professor from the university perhaps who are just grinning ear to ear, looking at the Venus at the statue and admiring its beauty. Complete admiration. They truly, truly recognize how valuable, gorgeous, and how aesthetic the statue truly is you know we also see this when oliver picks up the arm of the venus Mm -hmm. right and he touches it carefully he caresses it almost and you really sense the devotion that elio oliver professor perlman and the others involved have towards this culture towards the beauty of the statues towards the aesthetic and the whole roman culture in general And I also feel like this devotion is really mirrored in the relationship between Elio and Oliver. Absolutely. And that's really shown in the scene. You already mentioned the scene of Perlman's, the dad's monologue when he's Mm -hmm. talking to Elio. And before he gets on that whole tangent, that beautiful tangent, Elio is starting to lament and sort of express his emotions, how he feels about Oliver leaving and everything. And one very specific thing he says is, I think he was smarter than me. I think he was better than me. True, you know. Yes. And Perlman says, I think he would say the same thing about you. True. And so there really is this sense of devotion that they both harbor towards each other. And that's really interesting, especially in this context that we're talking about towards these allegations of maybe depicting grooming or power imbalance on screen. I mean, I believe that in a certain way, It can be said that it is purposely there. And the reason I think that there's a lot of merit to the claim that this is explicitly showing a dynamic that in real life could be dangerous is because Guaranino has a kinship towards a very specific kind of cinema, which is the cinema of taboo. Mm -hmm. And actually, I had the chance to see him speak. Wow the Rome Film Festival, and there he literally spoke about this. He spoke about how his greatest inspirations for movies was always taboo. Interesting. He always loved the idea that film as a medium, Mm -hmm. because he was aware of film's intrinsic value of something that communicates emotions and connects with anyone, and because he's aware of this impact that movies have on everyday moviegoers, He enjoys the idea that he can provoke such emotions from people explicitly by showing these taboos. Mm -hmm. And I remember that 
He put together a collection of movies that really inspired him in this sense. He mentioned one movie called In the Realm of the Senses, which has a lot to do with sensuality, also how food and sensuality can be mixed. And then he mentions another movie from Bertolucci, which you mentioned before, mm -hmm. specifically the movie La Luna, mm -hmm. which has to do with an incestuous relationship between a mother and her child. Mm -hmm. And when you place this movie in the context of the cinema of taboo, like what Anina likes to call it, you really understand what the intention was of showing such a dynamic. It's as if Guaranino really wanted to provoke us, and I think he did in a certain way. Mm -hmm. You know, we keep going back to that one scene where they're looking through the slides. Another thing Perlman says is, talking about the statue's beauty, their ageless ambiguity, their curves and everything that we talked about, he mentions that they're daring you to desire them. Mm -hmm. They're provoking you, mm -hmm. just like Guaranino maybe wants to provoke us. Mm -hmm. And even explicitly in the movie, he has one of his characters say the words, cinema is a mirror of reality, right. when talking about the Spanish director Buñuel. And this is definitely one, I think, really valid way of understanding and viewing this imbalance, this mm -hmm. dynamic that a lot of people are critiquing right now. And it was most likely the intent of the director to provoke us. And there's a lot to say about that. I mean, even in contemporary cinema right now, mm -hmm. I feel like there has been a trend of sort of trying to provoke viewers, of trying to bring up emotions from shocking scenes, from shock factor. You know, just looking at the Cannes Festival, I think it was two years ago, the winner was this movie called Titane by the French director Julie Ducourneau. And it also has a strong sensual theme, but differently from In the Realm of the Senses, the sensuality of this movie is closely connected to cars mm -hmm. and machinery. I'm just going to leave it at that. And it was so shocking because no movie had ever depicted such a thing. And coincidentally, just to support what I've been saying, what we've been saying, it won the top prize at the mm -hmm. Cannes Festival. And there are countless other directors we can mention. I mean, there's Darren Aronofsky, there's, like we said, Bernardo Bertolucci, maybe even Hereditary or Midsummer. You know, there are, are actual shots of yeah. severed heads yeah, and much more. Yeah. So the shock factor has always been and recently is a very big part of films and the allure that a lot of directors are trying to take in. And that being said, I feel like looking at a counter-argument that a lot of people probably make, and this is also a counter-argument to the whole debate on grooming, whether you can justify the placement of the allegedly grooming relationship in Call Me By Your Name, whether you can explain it through, like we said, countless other factors, such as the Greek culture, a really valid argument is still, whether it's justified or not, should directors portray certain things on screen? Mm -hmm. Or should directors have a social and civic responsibility since they know and we know very well the subconscious impact that film and TV shows and visual media has on people, how much it stays with people? Mm -hmm. Should they have a civic duty, a social responsibility to not portray mm -hmm. certain things? Mm -hmm. Should extreme violence, extreme gore, or even maybe extreme sexual relationships be not hidden, but maybe not glorified, not given a platform so as to not incentivate, so as to not propel certain cultures? Should Guaranino have refrained from depicting a relationship 
with such an age imbalance、mm-hmm. in order to prevent such situations from being facilitated in our culture.、Mm-hmm. But I think what's so tough about that topic is it's very hard to draw the line. Yeah, right. The question、absolutely. is where do you draw the line? We have the perfect example of "Call Me by Your Name" itself, right? So. It is a relationship between a twenty-four-year-old and a seventeen-year-old, and nevertheless, we watch this film. And I don't know about you, but when I experience and look at their relationship, it seems very natural to me. It doesn't seem like anybody's grooming anyone. Oliver, on multiple occasions, asks Elio if he is okay, if he ruined him in some way, and offers him space to leave and distance himself from him. But Elio mourns after Oliver, so this relationship is observed as very authentic. And the question is, would you start drawing the line there? Is、mm-hmm. it before that? Is it after that? And that is the issue. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking about this very subject, I mean, the context of films, just for the sake of connecting it to other directors out there, there is one very influential director, a German director, actually. His name is Michael Haneke.、Mm-hmm. And he's very well known、yes. for his critique on the portrayal of violence、mm-hmm. in films. So we've sort of shifted our attention towards violence instead of sexual or romantic relationships. But I think it's very important to mention here, and just to keep in mind when going to movies and considering film philosophy in general, because through his movie Funny Games, which was sort of the movie that propelled him to mainstream fame, I would say.、Mm-hmm. He openly critiques the depiction of violence by never showing it on screen, but only showing hints of it.、Mm-hmm. So the film, in its nature, is extremely violent. I mean, it talks about two young boys who capture a family and, in many ways, torture them,、mm-hmm. even physically at one point. But Haneke made a point to never show violence on screen, and instead only to show. The effects of the violence, or physical consequences of the violence, such as some blood splattered on a bed or on other locations, and he also plays a lot with the concept of meta、mm-hmm. in film. So, in Funny Games, what's really interesting is how the characters speak to us directly. They look the spectator in the eye. That they break the fourth wall completely, and they talk to us because Nikkei wants to play with our sensibility, just like all the other films play with our sensibility, and he's trying to make us aware. That violence, extreme violence in film, desensitizes us.、Mm-hmm. And there's this one scene where they make a violent act. I believe that they shoot someone, and the characters literally take a remote control and rewind the movie we just watched. Seriously, it's an actual meta film. And the reason it's a meta film is because、yeah. he's showing us how a movie can control our perception this way. He's making us aware that we're being desensitized towards violence. Another film he made, Benny's Video, literally talks about a boy. Who finds a videotape of a pig being slaughtered, and he becomes so obsessed with it that he decides to come up with his own murder. And this is like a fifteen-year-old、wow. boy,、yeah. and he's so infatuated by this portrayal of violence in a home video that he finds that he invites a girl to his room and proceeds to take her life.、Mm-hmm. And it's this very critique that a lot of people and a lot of directors are making. You know, should certain things be portrayed? Up to what extent can we portray things?、Mm-hmm. And there are directors who are constantly touching the line with this. I mean, we're talking about violence. How can we not、mm-hmm. mention Tarantino? Of course. I think that as a society, we always keep on circling back to how do we separate art and artist? Right. You know, I mean,、yeah. another director is Gaspar Noé. He's this French director, and he made this film Irreversible, where basically there's a 
maybe a three to four minutes long mm-hmm. take of a rape scene. Wow. And I mean, there's obviously validity to the claims that it's important for the art piece. It's important for that movie that there was this long take of a rape scene because it really had to do with the story that was going on or maybe the development of the character. But I have one question. Was there any purpose to the rape scene at all in the film? Well, there was no broader social purpose. There was no really purpose for character arc, I would say, either. Mm -hmm. But it was the focal point of the story. Mm Mm-hmm. And so there's always this line between, does the movie justify it? And I mean, we're guilty of that too. I mean, we were just dissecting why we feel like the alleged grooming dynamic between Ellie and Oliver, in fact, fits into the movie, in fact, makes sense for the art of the movie. I mean, we're constantly blurring this line. And it's also super interesting how you mention getting away with something, you know, because now we're moving into... I don't know, can we call it cancel culture, just the way that these things are perceived by the general public? We can call it cancel culture. Yeah, and as you said, there are many directors who have, in fact, walked out of these films that they've created, these sets that they've created, completely untouched. Mm -hmm. And I think if we don't really want to get into the whole discussion of how far can we justify art in its art form and the content it tried to create for showing certain depictions of violence or whatever. The line is definitely clear when it comes to directors who create certain situations on set. I mean, you talked about Tarantino placing himself in that situation for no apparent other reason other than shock value. Mm -hmm. I think it's impossible not to talk about Kubrick. Oh, absolutely. And his treatment of Shelley Duvall in The Shining. I mean, it's famously renowned, and that's such a paradox. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's basically a household story, Mm -hmm. the way he treated Shelley Duvall. I mean, everyone knows about the scene Mm -hmm. that was... Recorded more times than any other scene. Yeah, I think it has more than 100 takes. Yeah, in cinematic history. Exactly, just to get her to have that very authentic scream. But besides that, what really hit me when learning this story was the fact that Kubrick also, before the filming started, went on set and told every single crew member behind Shelley's back to essentially look down on her, to treat her horribly, to treat her like she isn't a real person, to neglect her. Because he wanted Shelley to walk on set and feel neglected for everything that she did in every single way because her character is supposed to be a wife that's neglected. And he felt that that was the best way to have her enter the character. And the thing is that method acting is an established concept in Hollywood. It's even celebrated, you know, method actors are the the best ones in the craft, Mm -hmm. supposedly. But But it has to be consensual. Exactly. It has to come from the actor's choice. I mean, Kubrick essentially imposed method acting on her without her even knowing and traumatized her. Mm -hmm. And like I was saying, it's such a paradox that we all know this and Kubrick will always remain untouched Mm -hmm. Well, because he justifies this, he says that he put Shelley in this position to bring out the best acting performance within her, right? She plays Wendy, this wife who's being treated terribly by Jack, the protagonist in The Shining. And I believe that Kubrick, at one occasion, because I read about this last night, um, said that he did Shelley a favor almost because thanks to him imposing method acting on her, Without her knowing it, she was able to deliver the best performance possible. And so also she will go into the film history books as an amazing actress in this legendary horror movie, The Shining. Yeah. And the reason I wanted to mention the importance of talking about the set 
atmosphere that a director creates because that's basically one of his main responsibilities. I mean, directors take on so many different roles in each movie, but that's one very constant one because I think it's always important to remember that film is different from other arts, specifically in the fact that it comprises a very large human element. There are so many different people working on a set. Mm -hmm. And so just because of that, we cannot make the same argument, separate art from artists, that we can for other pieces of art like music or like paintings or writing because those are usually somewhat individualistic yes. forms of art, but yes. a movie has hundreds of people on yes. it. And so you need to be mindful mm -hmm. of the people you're working with. You mm -hmm. cannot afford to be essentially a dictator and just call it a, being an auteur. Mm -hmm. You know, an auteur is someone who has complete control over mm -hmm. a movie who mm -hmm. wrote, shot, maybe even edited it, directed mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. And we're constantly excusing this because we're so amazed by the grandeur of these auteurs who are able to control every single aspect of a movie. Mm -hmm. But it overlooks all the single people who are mm -hmm. there and who were maybe even neglected and treated badly just for the sake of this creation. No, with a film, you have to be mindful of the people who are in it. You have to be mindful of everything. Yes, but going back to accountability, I'm thinking that maybe, even though a lot of directors and actors have gotten away with acts that cannot be justified, that were simply wrong, maybe this is changing. Perhaps even established players in the film industry are now being held more accountable for their actions, I mean, I'm just thinking about the waves the Me Too movement had, but on a more specific note, we can simply look at the film we're discussing right yeah. now, Call Me By Your Name. Army Hammer, as I'm sure you've heard, who plays Oliver, has been involved in multiple controversies in recent years. In early 2021, several women accused Hammer of, I believe it was emotional abuse, sexual abuse, with some alleging that he had made violent and disturbing comments about rape, cannibalism, and other explicit fantasies. In addition to these allegations of abuse, Hammer has also faced scrutiny for his past behavior, including leaked messages that contained graphic and disturbing language. Yeah. And even though, of course, Hammer denied these allegations, he has faced consequences. He has faced a lot of bad consequences, even though he is an established actor, even though he did do a really good job when it came to his acting in Call Me By Your Name. He lost several film roles and stepped away from various projects, and a sequel to Call Me By Your Name was planned. There were multiple interviews with Timothy Chalamet and Armory Hammer, including Luca Guadagnino, where they talked about potential sequels, what their relationship could look like in the future. However, now we know that he will not be a part of yeah. it, right? And so maybe the whole concept, separate the art from the artist, hopefully... This is changing now. Yeah. I mean, he was essentially exiled. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's the biggest punishment any celebrity could get. Mm -hmm. And I mean, obviously you could get into it. You could talk about whether the merits of cancel culture are valid, mm -hmm. you know, because we basically looked at history and how it's changed now. It's the main focal point that there was no accountability. Now there is. Mm -hmm. But when you look at accountability, what should accountability be? Mm -hmm. Because we're essentially talking about punishment. Mm -hmm. So I feel like we could attribute the same terms that different theorists of punishment attribute to state punishment, for example. We can attribute to accountability, where it's not the state punishing, but it's the fora, the public, the spectators punishing, you know, imposing this punishment. And is a punishment like the one Army Hammer mm -hmm. got, so essentially being exiled, this vengeful, this retributivist punishment, is that the best way to go? Or should we be a little more maybe 
in canonical theoretical terms utilitarian mm -hmm. and focus on reforming the person, understanding that what he did is placed in a broader social, biological, psychological, humanitarian factor mm -hmm. and bring people to reepicification and reformation and helping them readapt to society instead of being vengeful and punishing them. But I think that subject matter has been heavily debated throughout the evolvement of humans itself, right? People have always been punished in different ways. And yeah, I'm interested to see how this will develop and especially how cancel culture will develop, which is obviously a pretty recent development. Yeah, in the future, we really have to see what happens. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So anyways, taking it back to our beloved Call Me By Your Name, what is something that you notice particularly because we talked about mm. it a lot and I think you yes. have a very specific view of the movie and I'd yes. really be interested in knowing what you took away from it in, yeah. on your own you know well I have watched this film countless times and what I love is that every time I watch it I learn and explore something new right because the movie has so many layers it has so many facets and one thing that I would really like to talk to you about that I didn't even notice the first couple of times I saw the film and I believe gets overlooked by most viewers is the role that Marcia mm. plays in the film. Interesting. Yeah. Elio's and Marcia's relationship is one of the film's quieter, less explosive relationships, but in my opinion, just as complex and touching as the main event. So to quickly provide an intro to their relationship for those of you that do not know, Marcia is a side character in the film who is a lifelong friend of Elio's. She is a close family friend. She also, I believe, stays over for dinner and is part of yeah. Elio's friend group. Prior to Elio and Oliver's relationship fully blossoming, Elio and Marcia, I think you could say, start dating. Yeah. Yeah. Is that Absolutely. how you would maybe describe it? It's yeah, not ever that, specifically yeah. mentioned. But what they essentially do is they go on night swims. He gifts her books. They explore their sexuality with each other and are just simply very close. And this relationship, of course, then gets overshadowed when Elio's relationship progresses with Oliver. And particularly in one scene, Marcia gets rejected by Elio and is hurt by this. Yeah, a scene that I remember you thought was very funny. Are you talking about the am I your girl scene? Exactly. Yeah, that was very bold. It was a very bold move, very yeah. interesting. And he just full-on rejected her. And I have shown this film to quite some people of all genders, and it's so interesting. In my experience, females tend to notice her because they relate to her so much. You know, she is the girl who is there all along. She was there in the first scene of the film, remember, when they were waiting for I Oliver to that. arrive. Yeah, because yes. the movie literally opens with a shot of her. Exactly. Right? Exactly. She's the very first character we meet virtually. She really, really is. And she's there all along. She is so beautiful and smart, yet insecure about both things. She's insecure about her interest in reading. She's shy about her body. You know, she displays a lot of features that people commonly experience throughout adolescence yet she is curious about Elio but eventually gets forgotten by both the viewer of the film and Elio himself when he becomes closer with Oliver and what I really want to talk about specifically is the final scene between Elio and Marcia in the final scene Elio is crying he is heartbroken because of Oliver's departure that had previously occurred yeah. And even after Elio broke Marcia's heart and rejected her, she does what I think no one really expected. Instead of being angry with Elio, she approaches him and expresses how much she sympathizes with him and how much it pains her to see him hurt. 
And she then continues to say, je t'aime Elio, right? She confesses her love. She says, I love you, and reaches out for his hand, offering a truce, offering a friendship, which he then accepts. What does he say? I think for life. What for was life. It? He does say for what life. What was it in Italian? Or it was, was it French? I think it was French, actually. Oh, okay. For la vie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. For la vie. Exactly. And I've always noticed the parallel there between them shaking hands yes. and Oliver and Elio shaking hands. I mean, virtually shaking hands with, with the a Venus. Stash. Yeah, yes, exactly. Exactly. And what is so inspiring about her is that she acknowledged, accepted, and expressed her feelings towards him, towards Elio, knowing full on that Elio wasn't in love with her. He didn't feel the same way, and she knew it. I mean, he had already rejected her in the past, and he was literally crying right in front of her eyes because he was in love with someone else. And with that in mind, nevertheless, she swallowed her pride and confessed her love because that was her reality, and she didn't shield herself from it. She still confessed her love, rather than denying her feelings, downplaying her emotions, or even blaming Elio for hurting her, she accepted the reality of things. And the reality of things was that she was in love with a person who wasn't in love with someone else. But that didn't mean that she didn't have the right to feel those emotions. Exactly, exactly. And that is where her strength comes from, right? Elia was not at fault for this, and she doesn't blame him either. The courage, bravery, and strength that takes is admirable. And it's crazy. She even takes it a step further and turns her negatively connotated heartbreak into something positive by offering her friendship to Elio because her feelings for him exceed the pain she feels of not being able to engage in a romantic relationship yeah. with him. She accepts being only friends with him because she is that selfless and cares about Elio that much. Yeah, and it's interesting. Even the actress who plays Marcia, Esther Garrow, she commented on this and claimed that, quote, Marcia cares about Elio more than her own happiness, and maybe that's why in the end their relationship as friends isn't broken, end quote. So this really illustrates the strong feelings that she had for him, and whether this is a healthy attitude to put someone else's happiness in front of your own or not, that is, of course, heavily debatable, but I believe that these precise traits, the courage, bravery, strength, and selflessness are the reasons why Esther Garrel had women come up to her after screenings claiming that her role was so inspiring to them and that friends are on her side. And what's interesting is that her role in the novel was minor, oh, right? absolutely. Yeah. It was Guadagnino who added these previously mentioned layers of depth to her character and taking her role and strong character a step further, I think there are multiple deliberate parallels that were initiated by Guadagnino even though he didn't confirm this. These parallels are between other dialogues in the film and her character. I have two specific examples. Elio's father gave some beautiful advice to Elio after Oliver had left in that scene we've now talked about multiple times, right? Mr. Perlman said, quote, We rip so much out of ourselves to be cured of things faster that we go bankrupt by the age of 30 and have less to offer each time we start with someone new. But to feel nothing so as to feel anything... What a waste. What a waste. End quote. Yeah. It's beautiful. And I think Marcia and the role that she plays, especially in the ending, really embodies this embodies attitude. Completely. Absolutely. Completely. In the final scene with Elio, by choosing to feel the love that she has for him, she accepts the inevitable following pain that comes from unrequited love. 
chooses to feel this rather than numbing it. And she does this because she is smart enough to, and this also refers back to the speech, she's smart enough to know how rare and special it is to fall what in love with someone in the first yeah, place. What they had was absolutely. so special, even if it's unrequited, even if it isn't both-sided. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I thought that parallel was very interesting. Of course, we don't know if it's true, but it suits the film very well. And another parallel that I thought of was the French romance novel that Elio's mother read to Elio oh, and Elio's father, yeah. her husband, right? And she translated it from German to English. And it's basically about this knight who falls in love with a princess and is essentially afraid of confessing his feelings towards her. And the knight asks a crucial question to himself, was ist besser, reden oder sterben? Which translates to... Is it better to speak or to die? Exactly. Is it better to speak or to die? And Marcia is the one who chooses to speak she and live, right? Speak. Speaking, representing her confession that she loved Elio and living, representing how she embraces her feelings. She takes pride in them and moves forward by offering her friendship towards Elio. She chooses this over not speaking and consequentially dying in silence, here by death probably representing her heart going bankrupt, right? And That's beautiful. It really, really is. The theme of feeling over not feeling occurs quite a lot. And the way I see it, it's intertwined throughout the whole film. And when you really, really notice it, and like I said, this only happens when you watch it multiple times. Yeah. So that definitely leaves some food for thought. And I really encourage anyone watching the film to maybe notice this dimension. And I feel like this really takes us back to our original argument about this film, about the scenes that are placed there only to give the sense of atmosphere. I feel like we've understood that these scenes are also there, like in many other transcendental style films, mm -hmm. to develop a philosophy. Right. And this gets the philosophy of time, of feeling, of love, and every scene, every character is not here to propel, to bring forward a plot mm -hmm. like typical mm -hmm. Hollywood style films, but they're there to bring forward a philosophical narrative, mm -hmm. a philosophical conflict, however you want to mm -hmm. call it. Yeah. But that's why Marcia exists. That's right. why those scenes exist, that dialogue right. exists. Right. Because in the end, this is the question that the movie wants to leave you with. Exactly. And it's absolutely beautiful. Yeah, and it adds so much quality because the depth can be observed also when deviating away from Elio and Oliver, which are the two main characters. I think there's so much to unravel, which shows how multifaceted this film is it and really how is. everyone, how it's almost subjective. It morphs around your personality, your character, and whatever it is that you are going through or that you have experienced in the past. So concluding, I think one can say that this film has been very influential and that its slow pace, subtlety, and sensuality create a unique experience for the viewer, which is hard to replicate and find. Nonetheless, I was wondering, Hadrian, if any films come to your mind that somewhat come close to Call Me By Your Name. They never exactly will, but... I mean, always I keeping it that. high up on always that pedestal. Keep it high up there. But no. no, actually, it's funny that you mentioned that there is one film that I have been thinking about lately in terms of coming close to that sort of cinematography, that sort of approach to directing that Call Me By Your Name has. And that movie is The Worst Person in the World. Oh, yes. It's I this, love that film. I absolutely I loved love it, it as well. Yeah. It's this... Contemporary, I think it was two years ago that it uh -huh. came out. It's this Norwegian film by the director Joachim Trier. Yes. And it's the third film in his trilogy, the Oslo trilogy, which also has to do 
less with coming of age because his characters are already more developed. More I mean, established, they're right? in a different phase yeah. of life in terms of Elio. I feel they're already mm -hmm. in their late twenties and they're more trying to discover who they are in the adult world. And his last character in this third film, the worst person in the world, mm -hmm. I feel is given the same importance in her internal and spiritual and philosophical journey. Like, Guadagnino gives to Elio. Mm -hmm. And what I really feel is similar to Call Me By Your Name in this Norwegian film is that there's a lot of importance and attention mm -hmm. giving to letting the character breathe. Oh, yes. And I remember when I watched this, I was so shocked mm -hmm. that there was a single, there was more than one scene actually, but that this movie was not afraid to have pure silence. Mm -hmm. There was a scene that was about 30 seconds long, sorry, a shot actually, yeah. with complete and utter silence, not even street noises, not even yeah. anything. Yeah. And just this shot of our main character breathing mm -hmm. because the whole film is this episodic and very rhythmic nature of mm -hmm. her going through her life and developing mm -hmm. and trying this boyfriend, trying this <laughs> faculty of studies, trying this hobby. Mm -hmm. And it's as if she's so restless, as mm -hmm. if she's so afraid mm -hmm. of being quiet, of being still, of just taking a moment to breathe that when she actually breathes, the movie makes this one of the most important scenes. Mm -hmm. And the fact is, directors like Joaquim Trier know that we're not used to feeling silence in movies. Mm -hmm. They know that we're used to being entertained with every single second. It, it's a concept, it's called horror vacui. It comes from Latin. It means fear of emptiness. Mm -hmm. And these kind of directors like Guaranino, like Joaquim Trier and many others, they know the effect that silence that stillness, that dead moments are going to have on us. Mm -hmm. And they're not afraid to portray them because mm -hmm. they want to portray actual life. Mm -hmm. And so I think it was very beautiful to have this in this film. And mm -hmm. it might be an example. It might prove that maybe there is a trend opening up where movies are going to be more naturalistic mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. they were at one point. Mm -hmm. Naturalistic and realistic. realistic I really do absolutely. hope so. This was Lean and Hadrian. Thank you for listening. We really hope that you enjoyed this episode. And... Stay tuned. Bye. Bye. The music for this podcast episode is produced by Stone Ocean. This podcast episode has been written, recorded, and edited by Hadrian Diani and Lean Mahaini. Audio technician, Sharar Abdullah.